Ukraine continues to press back against Russian forces on all fronts as Vladimir Putin's propaganda machine kicks into full gear. With the rising price of natural gas and high demand for it in Europe, a number of conflicts around the world have risen to the surface and gained new international importance. And in other news, North and South Korean vessels exchange fire along the disputed maritime border between the countries. Welcome to Inside Israel News, your home for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news politics, current events in the Middle East, and world news. Or as the internet trolls say, mouthpiece of the Zionist conspiracy, spokesman for the elders of Zion, highly paid propagandist of the Mossad. Yeah, no. This is Inside Israel News. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Welcome back, insiders, the extremely erudite and extremely well-informed, highly moral, highly educated, elite audience of this podcast. Those who want to know everything and who want to understand the headlines before they're in the news. Uh, Oftentimes, the stories that I talk about here in my news analysis uh, become the headlines in very short order. Uh, It's it's a wonderful phenomenon. It's happened a a good number of times, and uh, I, for one, am very proud of it. Garius Vulcan with facts, reason, logic, and uh, no screaming pundits. (laughs) You'll not find screaming punditry uh, here on this podcast. So with that, insiders, uh, this is the World News Report. So this episode is about events around the world. Obviously, events around the world do impact what happens in Israel. Uh, And while I started this show uh, primarily to focus on Israeli news, uh, that uh, there's just too many things going on in the world, and I've had to separate out world news episodes and Israel episodes. I'll try to keep these brief because you can get world news commentary from other sources. Uh, But I have a number of people who've asked for my input on events in the Pacific and uh, other areas, and they, they want commentary on broader topics. So These episodes will be for all of that. So uh, with that, as we're headed into the midterms here in the U.S., uh, the rhetoric, of course, is flying politically. And uh, we have a a lot going on over here. Uh, It's looking pretty good for the Republicans. Um, Again, you can get that news commentary elsewhere. Uh, Newt Gingrich on his podcast, uh, Newt's World, just did an excellent analysis of the polls in a recent episode. Uh, He also recently had Dennis Prager on. That's awesome. Good stuff over there. Uh, And uh, on the verdict with Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz is talking about a lot of things going on with the election. Of course, he's out campaigning uh, very actively. So there's other places to get good commentary on American domestic politics. Uh, Israel isn't a big issue in the midterms here. However, Iran has become a bit of an issue in the overarching narrative, that is, the complaints about the administration's policies and the policies of the Democrats, uh, especially regarding you know, the sellout Iran deal that was uh, negotiated by Barack Obama back in 2015. Trump's decision to depart from it, cancel it, and put the sanctions back on in Iran, Uh, Iran pressing forward with their nuclear program, and the current administration's inability either to clamp down on Iran and try to prevent them from developing a weapon or to bring Iran to the negotiating table in any serious way. 
And given America's defeat in Afghanistan, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the general weakness of U.S. foreign policy at the moment, there's not a lot of reason for Iran to, you know, quake in their boots, let's just say. I mean, they're, they're not really afraid of us. Uh, perhaps after the next presidential election, who knows? In any case, uh, midterms, uh, as an issue in the midterms, I- Iran is becoming a minor issue in the broader sweep of the whole foreign policy question. And another issue that has uh, started to come up in the midterms, of course, is the question of Ukraine and U.S. support for Ukraine. Uh, this has come up in a couple of different ways. <clears throat> one of the one of the main things that that kind of brought it into the news recently, uh, where Washington Post was trying to create some spin to try to uh, benefit the Democrats on the issue, uh, <clears throat> is that the Republican leader in the House, uh, Kevin McCarthy, almost certainly the the incoming speaker uh, at this point, the way that uh, things look for the midterms, uh, said that Ukraine would not receive any, quote, blank checks from a Republican Congress. Now, this is one of those wonderful, tactfully worded political statements that, you know, you can just pick apart. Right. What does that mean? Blank checks. Does that mean that we won't send any aid? No, that's not what he said. Right. He's he's open to the possibility that some aid will be sent. Right. No blank checks means that Congress isn't just going to do whatever the White House asks for. White House says, hey, we need 50 billion dollars. And he might pick through it and say, you know, Republicans feel like uh, you can do with 13 billion dollars. Or, you know, we want to spend the money on military equipment that we build here and send over there rather than giving money to Ukraine. We know that Ukraine is a country with a history of corruption. Uh, Vladimir Putin, for sure, has pumped a lot of money into Ukrainian politics in an effort to corrupt it. Uh, That culture of corruption has been a problem all throughout uh, Ukraine. And uh, it certainly didn't help that the current president, when he was vice president, uh, had his son on one of the boards of a Ukrainian oil company. Uh, and taking money from them and from, you know, people close to Vladimir Putin. In any case, uh, that is a big problem. President Zelensky, uh, Vladimir, Vladimir Zelensky, was elected to end that corruption, to reduce it. But as we know in our own government, <clears throat> you, you know, you can't root out all of the corruption. Uh, but he is doing what he can on behalf of the people of Ukraine. Of course, at the moment, uh, everyone there is a little distracted because, you know, they're being invaded, <laughs> which is... a which is an issue, and uh, more on that in just a second. Uh, so economic aid, um, you know, big blank checks to Ukraine. We don't really know where that money's going. Is that going into somebody's pocket somewhere? Is there a lot of graft? Who's, you know, are, are Ukrainian politicians and bureaucrats stuffing some of that into suitcases somewhere? Uh, that we don't know <clears throat> for absolute certain. And so some accountability there would definitely be beneficial. But when it comes to the U.S. spending money to assist Ukraine in fighting the war, uh, that uh, that definitely has its benefits. And that's something the Republican Congress is open to entertaining. After all, a good number of Republicans in the Senate especially, including Ted Cruz, the aforementioned uh, senator from Texas, uh, a number of Republicans support U.S. efforts to defend Ukraine, to assist Ukraine in its own defense. Of course, U.S. forces are not directly engaged. Neither are the forces of NATO. So, in essence, Kevin McCarthy's statement is fairly generic. 
uh, toes the Republican line that uh, a number of Republicans are concerned about the spending on Ukraine. Uh, but at the same time, there is generally broad based support for defense, Ukraine's defense against Russian aggression. So, you know, you're going to hear a lot of rhetoric out there, especially on the right. And this is one of the frustrating things for me. I don't do tribalism. And, and it, it's so easy to fall into that trap, right? Uh, my side can do no wrong and their side can do no right. And whatever they do is bad and whatever we do is good. I mean, it sounds simplistic, but this is the world we live in now, right? Wokies on the left are saying, you know, we're all good. Donald Trump is completely evil. He's literally Hitler. And people on the right are out there, you know, Joe Biden's completely crazy and everything he does is wrong. The fact is... Bad people do good things and good people do bad things. In fact, is why we have that, that old cliche that a broken clock is right twice a day. So uh, as I've said before, I, I don't do tribalism. On a lot of issues I've talked about on here, uh, I have credited the right. I have credited the left. I just complimented Speaker Pelosi or in the last podcast episode, uh, or perhaps a couple episodes back, uh, about going to Azerbaijan and trying to help settle the conflict there with Armenia, which I'm going to be discussing later in this podcast. Uh, and I will give credit where credit is due. And her trip to Taiwan was also brilliant, uh, showing the flag and, and showing China that we're not going to be intimidated by their rhetoric. Uh, that, that shows some strength. Uh, it's unfortunate that we don't have a vice president who's competent enough to go to these places and, and show the flag, as we've had in past administrations. But the Speaker of the House will do. Uh, next best thing, you might say. Uh, so that's, um, you know, that's just how I do things. I don't like this idea of, you know, the good, the bad and whatever. Now, when it comes to my sports team, of course, you know, then my sports team is always the best. Everybody else's sports teams are terrible. <laughs> That's just how that works. Right. Uh, but when it comes to uh, politics, uh, it takes a little bit more thought and um, a little more subtlety, some nuance, right, to understand what is good, bad and whatever. Uh, good you know, people that I generally like, politicians that I generally like, uh, have been known to embrace terrible policies. Politicians that I despise have been known to embrace great policies. Uh, not a big fan of Barack Obama, but when he chose to privatize space exploration and, and open the door to companies like SpaceX, that was brilliant. And look at the benefits we've all had from that. Uh, you know, there's his economic policies, uh, not so keen on. So when you when you get into this tribalism stuff, it, it leads down a dark path. And that's a lot of what we're getting now. A lot of this rhetoric, there is definitely, you know, there are definitely valid opinions, but there's also a lot of dangerous rhetoric going around uh, regarding Ukraine. Now, when it comes to political positions, I've discussed on here before, there is a, a very valid and legitimate question, political question out there about whether the United States should help Ukraine to defend itself. Uh, and that is something when it comes to conflicts that we should always discuss, that we must always entertain the notion that we are not necessarily going to have to become involved in every conflict around the world, right? Uh, and perhaps lately, you know, we, we have these problems where, you know, we cry wolf enough times, right? We, we invaded Iraq and that was a bad idea. Uh, I happen to 
opposed that. I was a college student at the time, and I was out protesting. I uh, was not happy about that. Uh, but because of those kinds of things, when we really do need to help and, and intervene in a conflict for all the right reasons, it makes it more difficult because we come from a place where people are jaded, people are callous. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, rhetoric thrown around like, you know, oh, you're unpatriotic if you don't support this war, right? And that makes it difficult for us. And I can understand, and, and don't take this the wrong way, because I'm not trying to talk down to anyone, but I can understand that American history is very complex and it's difficult to understand. And America's strategic best interests and economic best interests, what is absolutely vital to the United States, what is extremely important to the United States, and what is not important can be difficult territory to navigate, okay? And obviously, the, a lot of that's subjective. It's open to a lot of interpretation. People draw very different lessons from those things. And so, uh, you know, it's okay to be a little bit ignorant on these topics. Most of us just go about our lives. We know what we think we need to know and we learn what we think we want to learn and, and, and what we enjoy, right? Uh, and, you know, these can't be everyone's area of expertise. Now, one of the reasons I create this podcast, you can hear me jabber on about all of these things. You'll hear my perspective and, and backed with my historical opinions. My knowledge is at your disposal. I'm, I'm putting my word out here. Right. Uh, on these different things. Now, uh, there's a really sound debate to be had over whether the U.S. should have become directly involved in World War One. And uh, I'm not going to go into that here. I'm actually going to do a whole episode about it over on the Isaac Kite Show, my other podcast, uh, at some point, because that is just a really great historical question. And there's some really awesome input from various uh, thinkers, uh, American philosophers and political thinkers and political scientists on that issue. So that that's a whole nother question. But when it comes to World War II, it is very obvious that American interests were at, in jeopardy. Japanese expansion in China was horrific. The, the rape of Nanking, uh, it was just, it was, it was devastating. It was horrible. Uh, the, 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 the Japanese concept of Yamato Damashi, of, of this, this manifest destiny of, of Japanese rulership over Europe, over Asia, of Japanese racial superiority, was extremely dangerous. And it was pretty obvious that the Japanese had their eyes on the Philippines, which the U.S. were working to uh, free as an independent country from previous colonial possession. Uh, and they had their eyes on Guam and Wake Island and also on Dutch colonies and French colonies in the South Pacific uh, and British colonies. Dangerous, dangerous aspirations, okay, of which we were very much aware, right? We knew about that. And at the same time, you had Hitler, and the Nazis and their aggression in Europe and Stalin and his aggression. It was a very dangerous world. And it was one in which America was going to have to become more directly involved. At some point, we were going to have to enter those conflicts. And yet we did not. Uh, Americans were against getting involved. Public opinion slowly turned toward some involvement. Uh, we came to a point where we were willing to favor indirect involvement, such as the sending of military uh, equipment and uh, industrial supplies and, and finances to China, to Britain, to help fight these bad guys. <clears throat> Unfortunately, also to the Soviet Union, um, as I've talked about before, America made the USSR a world power in order to defeat the Nazis. And while we didn't have to go quite that far, uh, you know, obviously it, it was better deal for us 
as Americans, not to have to go toe-to-toe directly with the Germans, uh, but to have the Germans uh, fighting the war for the most part on the Eastern Front against uh, an enemy that, uh, you know, that wasn't us, (laughs) right? That the Russians fought the war for us, right? In any case, Americans knew that the world was going to hell and that we were the only ones who could stop it, okay? This failure to take action, the sticking our heads in the sand, okay, that's what led to Pearl Harbor. Now, I've been to Pearl Harbor. I have been to the Arizona Memorial, and you you stand on the, the sort of bridge they have there across the ship, and you look down at the Hulk, Uh, which is a grave for over a thousand Americans. Uh, When the bomb hit the magazine and blew that ship, it it raised the bow up out of the water, broke the keel and uh, caused the ship to settle on the, on the bottom forever, uh, completely destroyed an explosion that was so powerful. It blew men off of the deck of ships nearby. And um, you can see that explosion in the famous footage, the uh, movie reels from the attack on Pearl Harbor. Uh, That was just a horrible event. And that happened because Americans put our head in the sand. We were attacked and caught with our pants down because we didn't go out beforehand and do anything to stop it when a lot less was required. I've talked about in the past podcast, if America had gone to Munich and said no and told the Germans they could not have the Sudetenland, if Hitler had invaded the Sudetenland, It would have been a massacre for German troops, and we could have supported Czechoslovakia, which had the seventh largest army in the world at the time. We could have supported Czechoslovakia against the Germans, and World War War II in Europe could have been over in a year, with the Germans being fought to a standstill over Czechoslovakia, perhaps. Uh, And if not there without, you know, the U.S. being directly involved, right? And if not there, uh, then shortly thereafter. Right. It would have been a much smaller war at that time. But because we waited, because we did nothing, uh, because we sat back and we let the British and the French handle handle it, or should I say mishandle it, uh, we ended up being attacked. Appeasement does not work. Okay, so when I hear people talking about, oh, Vladimir Putin is, you know, uh, NATO uh, threatened Russia and, you know, Vladimir Putin felt threatened and that's why this war is happening. uh, Those are nice excuses you're making for Vladimir Putin, but it's not true. Uh, NATO is a threat to Russia in the way that a police officer is a threat to a criminal enterprise, to to drug dealers. Right. Uh, NATO is a threat that prevents Russian expansion. That's why NATO is a threat to Russia. Now, it is true, and I've talked about it before, that the the bombing of Serbia really upset the Russians and did lead to a rise of Russian nationalism. And that was a problem. That That was the time that Vladimir Putin came to office. But that event and NATO expansion are not an excuse for Vladimir Putin to invade a country and murder its citizens. And I've told you, I, as, a, as a teenager, I opposed the existence of NATO. Uh, I started to have some reservations during the Second uh, Chechen War when Vladimir Putin went out and murdered hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, no more Chechens, no more Chechen revolt, right? That's kind of how he did that. Uh, and then the invasion of Georgia, that was when, in 2008, well, that was when I realized NATO was going to have to stay, as much as I didn't like it. I wrote my article to encircle the Russian bear in 2012, That's 10 years ago, for those of you keeping track. Uh, I wrote an article 
about how we needed to encircle Russia, right? And uh, at that time, I was talking about building stronger, direct relationships with countries like Finland, Poland, Romania, Hungary, right, uh, that border Russia and Russian satellites like uh, Belarus. And obviously the Romania uh, borders, you know, Moldova, Moldova and, and Ukraine, but it's in the Black Sea. And so, <clears throat> you, you know, Romania becoming a naval power would in the Black Sea would be a strong benefit to the United States and our interests there. In any case, the point is, it is definitely in the U.S. strategic best interest to be helping Ukraine. Absolutely. I have not a shred of doubt anywhere in my mind, because if Vladimir Putin got Ukraine... If he's allowed to invade and take over Ukraine, he will not stop there. Oh, but but Isaac Vladimir Putin doesn't want to take over the world. Really? Well, neither did Hitler. Hitler didn't want to take over the world. No, 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 no. You see, it was he just wanted the Sudetenland. And then he got the Sudetenland. And he took the rest of Czechia. And it's like, oh, no, 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 he'll stop there. That, that's all fine. And then he invaded Poland. And then he invaded Denmark. And Norway. And the Low Countries. And France. You see where this is going? Okay, in Yugoslavia and Greece. And da, 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 okay. These dictators are emboldened by weakness, by appeasement, right? As, as Winston Churchill said, appeasement is feeding a, your friends to a crocodile, hoping that he'll eat you last. <coughs> it doesn't work, okay? If Vladimir Putin had been able to take Ukraine with ease, what do you think China would have done? They're sitting over there watching Taiwan. They want Taiwan. If the U.S. just, we just rolled over and played dead in Afghanistan. So it's like strike one. All right. Ukraine, if Vladimir Putin had just marched right in, taken the place over and we did nothing about it. Or, you know, if we had done nothing, lifted not a single finger to defend Ukraine, to help them. If Ukrainians are fighting on their own, uh, you know, she, she's president. She is watching. Xi Jinping is watching very carefully. Right? China maintains its vigilance. Uh, that would definitely have led to conflict in Taiwan, I, I can assure you. And that would be a real war. And the U.S. would much more likely to be engaged there because vital interests of the United States extend to Japan, South Korea, and yes, Taiwan, Philippines, Vietnam, and other countries in that area that are threatened by China and Chinese expansionism, just like it is very much in the best interests of the United States for Europe to remain free of Russian influence, right? We trade with Europe. We engage in financial transactions with Europe. Americans move to Europe. Europeans move to America. It is a vital importance to the United States that Europe remain free and prosperous and allied to us. Now, is NATO the best mechanism for that? I don't know, but okay. But right now, as I've said, you know, NATO has to stay. And now it's expanding to Sweden and Finland. Uh, it's a good thing. Any case. So vital U.S. interests are being threatened. Vladimir Putin is an evil dictator and he will continue to expand. All right. Take it from me. Right. You don't have to trust my opinion. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to believe what I believe. I'm just telling you. That is the case. And you're getting all this propaganda you'll hear out there. Oh, but Isaac, you know, uh, Ukraine's so corrupt. There's such a, their, their government, it's like a mob government. It's a, it's a neo-Nazi country. Zelensky, oh, he's an actor. He's a, they're just, it, they're so corrupt. It's okay to murder Ukrainians because they have a government that's corrupt. 
We can invade other countries because we don't like the president or because they have corrupt government. So the U.S. could just invade Mexico, kill tens of thousands of Mexicans, take the place over, no problem. This, this is, I mean, wow. This is really frustrating. And if, if you're hearing my frustration, they're friends of mine, like people I really like and care about who've, who've said things like this. And I'm exasperated. I don't know what to say. It's okay to kill Ukrainians because, oh, it's a, a globalist conspiracy. It's a Zionist conspiracy. It's a neo-Nazi country. How does that work? Zionist conspiracy? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's the Illuminati. It's aliens. The Russians want you to believe anything, anything you'll buy. They'll serve you up whatever you'll eat to get you to believe that, that Ukraine is bad. Now, let's examine some of these things, okay? Vladimir Zelensky was an actor. So was Ronald Reagan. Incidentally, Ronald Reagan was also president. And uh, I, as far as I know from people on the right, the greatest president of our lifetime, with some people arguing that that's Trump, but I mean, I still think Ronald Reagan was awesome for reasons that I won't go into right now, but he was an incredibly awesome president. So anyway, if you hear this kind of stuff going around, you don't have to think that America should support Ukraine. You don't have to think that we should be sending money over there or supporting them or what have you, okay? That's your opinion. And we can debate that. Okay, I'm telling you, in my opinion, without a shadow of a doubt, it is absolutely in America's strategic best interest to help Ukraine defend itself and to see that Vladimir Putin is completely defeated. Now, driving him out of power might not necessarily be in the best interests of the U.S., uh, but at the very least, his defeat is uh, essential. Okay, um, so I'm telling you that that's my opinion. You're welcome to whatever opinion you have. But don't come at me with all these excuses. Ukraine's a mob state. A mob state? You mean like a country where generals take money that's supposed to go to maintenance for their equipment and paint and these kinds of things and spend that money themselves? You know, put that money under their mattress. Buy themselves a Lamborghini or something. Where, where equipment isn't maintained. Where logistics supply chains break down. Because we're talking about the Russian army now, not the Ukrainian army. The Ukrainian army is a very efficient and effective fighting force that has not only held off one of the largest militaries in the world, but has driven them back. <clears throat> I'm sorry, people. A mob country, a completely corrupt state, could not do that. The evidence is there, okay? But we get a lot of stuff, you know. I've talked a lot before about the propaganda regarding Israel. Oh, it's okay to kill Jews because. Oh, Israel's horror. It's an apartheid state. Uh, Israel shouldn't exist. It's okay to kill Jews because of whatever lame excuse. Jews are sniveling, conniving trolls with horns on their head that drink the blood of Christian babies and eat blood matzah and have space lasers that, that start forest fires. People. People. Okay. Speaking of which, the usual anti-Semitism, it's not just Kanye West, oh, excuse me, Ye, uh, <laughs> who's out there spreading anti-Semitic rants, um, absolutely just inexcusable, I, I have no words, so I'm not even going to say anything, just unbelievable, right, the, the usual anti-Semitism from Kanye West, just, <sighs> you know, some people just hate Jews, it's horrible, um, uh, so, anyway, Vladimir Putin, in a recent speech, said that most of the people who ran the Soviet Union were Jewish. So the Soviet Union was the Jews. Now, Russians are already extremely anti-Semitic. 
there's there are violent there's violence and uh, graffiti and attacks on Jews all the time in Russia. How are Russians going to respond <clears throat> to Vladimir Putin starting to blame every horrible thing in the world on the Jews? It's a lie, by the way. Actually, most of the Soviet leaders were great Russians. A few from other Russian uh, ethnicities of the Russian Empire. For example, Stalin was Georgian, right? Stalin wasn't his name. It means steel in Russian, right? Uh, he was born in Georgia and actually studied for the priesthood of the Orthodox Church for a time. So um, that's just not true. There were a lot of Jewish revolutionaries, people who happened to be of Jewish descent, but these were communists. They worshipped at the altar of Marx. They weren't Jews. They didn't believe in Judaism, right? They weren't Jews in the way that I'm a Jew because I believe in Judaism and I go to a synagogue. <coughs> I read the Torah, right? I celebrate people like Dennis Prager and, and, and listen to, to great rabbis like Shmuley Botek. Anyway, <clears throat> so... It's just... Ah, it, it's frustrating. It's frustrating when you hear these things, but be strong. Don't let these things get to you. No, it is not okay to kill Ukrainians. It's not okay to invade other countries. In case you hadn't noticed, murder is wrong. Murder is morally wrong. So, if somebody's holding up a bank at gunpoint and a couple of people at the, <coughs> in, uh, among the hostages are discussing trying to disarm the robbers, you can't blame those people for risking getting shot. All right? It's the, the robber who's putting the gun who is committing the act of moral depravity here. That is the person who's in the wrong. That is the person who's causing the shooting. And any harm that results. All right? Vladimir Putin is the one risking World War III. The U.S. isn't risking World War III by standing up to him. We're preventing World War III by standing up to him. The fastest way to get to World War III is to surrender. <coughs> to let Vladimir Putin have whatever he wants. Because then he'll want more. And when we let him have that, he'll want more. Until we get to a point where we're not willing to give up. Right? So... That's how you get to World War III. Vladimir Putin is risking World War III. Vladimir Putin is dis risking nuclear war. And he's saber-rattling. He's making stupid threats, like he's going to use a tactical nuke. Of course he's not going to use a tactical nuke. That would be a really stupid move. But he can intimidate us with it. And if we're willing to back down and be afraid and say, Oh no, the big bad bully's got a tactical nuke he's going to use. We'd better run. What's going to happen? You're going to get bullied more. The only way to prevent World War III, to prevent all of these horrors, is to stand firm. Stand behind Ukraine and tell Vladimir Putin what to go do with himself. And I, I've heard people say, well, we could end up in World War III. Putin might fire his missiles. And then what? Right? It doesn't matter what government, you know, oh, with, with our president, we don't know what would happen. If Vladimir Putin launches a full-scale nuclear attack on the United States, we will respond. Our submarines will fire. And Vladimir Putin and Russia will be wiped off the face of the earth. There cannot be a grand Russian empire if there is no Russia. Okay, Vladimir Putin knows that that's a certain loss. And that's assuming that the Russian missiles will even fly in the first place. At this point, they can't even keep their planes in the air. Something like nine Russian planes have fallen out of the air in accidents and mechanical failures over the last few weeks here. So... 
including into a residential apartment complex. One fell in Siberia and managed to fall on a two-story house. I'm not a pilot, but, I mean, you're out in Siberia. You know, how hard do you have to try to hit a house in Siberia? Nobody lives there, right? It's Siberia. I mean, anyway. So, uh, Vladimir Putin knows that he loses that one for sure. Okay, he can cause massive destruction over here, but there won't be a Russia left. All right. So don't give me this garbage about we're risking World War Three. I've heard that from people. It's infuriating. The ignorance, the chutzpah, the bad attitude. I mean, you don't have to support the war, you know, U.S. help in, in the war over there. But don't give me BS excuses. And don't tell me it's okay to kill Ukrainians because. Uh, we're going to study morality 101 right now. Okay. If you've read your Bible, you know that murder is wrong. Okay, end of rant. Uh, there are rants here. They're just not, uh, you know, <laughs> yelling and screaming uh, punditry. So there you have it. That's that's some of our, our politics surrounding Ukraine. As we head into the midterms, you're going to hear a lot of rhetoric. Uh, Americans need to stand firm. We definitely need to get rid of the, the incompetent leadership we have in our country now. Uh, a president who can barely put a sentence together. Uh, and, you know, make statements on news interviews that have to be retracted by the White House, whatever that is. Because, you know, theoretically speaking, the White House is supposed to answer to the president. So if the president is saying things and the White House is correcting him, I don't know who's in charge. OK, but it isn't Joe Biden. Uh, and that's extremely dangerous. Uh, you know, so I'm looking forward to the political change for one. Uh, I'm not going to say the Republicans are all right about all the issues. I disagree with them on a couple of issues, but I think generally speaking, they're in the right right now. And looking at the Democrats, I mean, the incompetence they've shown over the past few years, doubling down on bad economic policies, it's it's terrible. To the, the really weird election in 2020 where we changed all the rules at the last minute. And then, you know, when Republicans and President Trump complained about things being unfair, you know, oh, it's a big lie and it's all this stuff. Really, people, you know, you know, anyone that disagrees with you is a terrorist now because they question, you know, how the election was conducted. The election in America is the Electoral College. The Electoral College voted. Those votes were counted. Joe Biden won the presidency. OK, and 2024 is coming up if you want to change that. Uh, and uh, looking to 2024, uh, President Trump making, uh, as I had audio on here from uh, just over a year ago of him speaking before CPAC, uh, where I, I was able to attend and get that audio firsthand for you. Uh, it sounded, I said then, uh, it sounded a lot like he's running. And uh, he just said something about, I might have to do it again in one of his speeches. So looks to me like he's planning to run. Given his popularity in the GOP, I would say my analysis of that would be the Republican nominee in 2024 is going to be Donald Trump or whoever Donald Trump endorses. He and he alone can decide that he's not going to run. And if he does not run, then he will decide who he wishes to endorse. OK, but, uh, you know, chances are he's running and there's not much that can be done to keep him off the ballot. So. That's kind of the situation that's going on here. Uh, like I said, you want analysis of the in particular races and that kind of thing, you can go get that somewhere else. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, those are some of the, the international issues that are going to impact the uh, current election. Not much is likely to change in U.S. foreign policy. Republicans are going to be a little less eager to write checks to Ukraine, perhaps, but that doesn't mean that <clears throat> they're 
we won't continue supporting Ukraine. Uh, most U.S. foreign policy is probably going to stay the same. Uh, it's entirely possible that uh, the Iran deal won't happen one way or another, but probably the, the administration won't be looking back at that anyway. Okay, um, so news in Ukraine real quick here. <clears throat> Uh, Ukraine continues to advance on all fronts. It's really interesting to hear that they are uh, moving in on Kherson and Zaporizhia. Uh, and there's been all this stuff with the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, with the Russians shelling it, uh, risking another Chernobyl. Uh, there's talk of destroying a dam that could flood lowlands and kill a lot of people. Uh, if you want to study the history of World War II... Uh, there were a lot of, you know, there was a, there was a dam that was uh, blown by the Soviets that killed tens of thousands of people in Ukraine uh, in the Second World War. There, uh, there was a dam that uh, the Kuomintang destroyed in China that killed hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, a lot of people don't know that history. There was a great fear by the Allies that the Germans would blow the dams on the Rhine and flood the Rhineland and make it difficult for the Western Allies to enter Germany. Uh, for whatever reason, that wasn't done, <clears throat> and the Allies were able to uh, move into Western Germany. So this this flooding threat this is this is a terrible thing. Uh, but Ukraine continues to advance. Russia is looking for a static war. Uh, Putin has uh, mobilized some three hundred thousand young people. He's starting to cast blame around NATO, the West, of course, have always been blamed. But all of a sudden, Jews are responsible for the Soviet Union. How long is it going to be before Jews are the reason that Russia isn't winning the war in Ukraine? And how long is it going to be before Russians start killing Jews in the streets? That I don't know. The Jewish agency has already been closed a couple times by the Russians. They're threatening uh, to do so, trying to prevent Russians from emigrating, uh, that is, leaving the country. Uh, a lot of Russians are trying to flee. One in eight Russian Jews have left already dangerous situation. But Putin wants a static war. Uh, he's hoping he can get uh, armistice lines like those in North Korea or this green line in Israel with the so-called West Bank, Judea and Samaria, what the international press erroneously calls the West Bank. West Bank of what? We don't know, but, you know, because it's part of Israel now. Um, but anyway, <clears throat> that's here nor there. But if Putin can create that static situation, he seems to think he might have a chance to keep those territories. Uh, most of Luhansk, Donetsk, Saporizhia, and Kherson, the, the oblasts, the, the larger states. Now there are cities, Kherson and Zaporizhia. Those are the cities that the Ukrainians are moving in on. And hopefully the Ukrainians will be able to take them and then also Mariupol and regain their, their coastline along the Sea of Azov uh, and <clears throat> move into Luhansk and Donetsk. Uh, and possibly even Crimea. Um, so far, NATO is backing up Zelensky on this. Uh, they they continue to support him, saying that uh, they don't think he should negotiate. They don't want him to try to find a way to to push for ceasefire. NATO is backing Zelensky, and that's a good thing. Uh, Zelensky will decide uh, when he's ready to quit <clears throat> from Ukraine's side. Uh, again, back to this morally reprehensible behavior on uh, Putin's part, Vladimir Putin can end the war tomorrow. All he has to do is withdraw his troops from Ukraine. Even if he just withdrew back to Crimea and tried to keep Crimea, uh, at least that might be grounds for a ceasefire, to give up Donetsk, to give up Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson, right? At the very least, 
So he could end the war tomorrow. But he's trying to claim that those territories are now annexed to Russia because of some bogus revolution, you know, (laughs) some bogus referenda that he held. Anyway, so that's that. With the war in Ukraine, natural gas prices have, of course, skyrocketed. And so now uh, everyone in the world is looking for gas. And this has led to some, I want to say, renewed awareness of certain conflicts going on in the world that are pre-existing. They predate the current situation, but they have become uh, uh, matters of great importance because there's gas involved. I've already talked a lot about Israel's maritime dispute, uh, Lebanon, you know, Lebanon disputing Israeli maritime claims in the Mediterranean, and they're finally working out an agreement on that. Uh, but there are other disputes and other conflicts in the world where this is becoming an issue. I've alluded to, in, in speaking about uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit there, the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. <clears throat> and this is this is one of those complicated things, because... This region, I mean, if you, if you know your history, the history of Rome, the Byzantine Empire, uh, the geopolitical conflicts with the Parthians and later the Sassanid Persians, it's, you know, this region has just been a, a complicated region. It's a hodgepodge of different ethnicities and nationalities. It's a mess. So <clears throat> what, you know, what you have is uh, in Azerbaijan, there are a large number of Armenians, including a particular valley in Artsakh, where there's just this overwhelming Armenian majority. It's mostly Armenians, right? And this is all contained within the nation state, the borders of the nation state of Azerbaijan, right? It's landlocked in there. Meanwhile, <laughs> Azerbaijan has a state uh, called uh Nakhivan. And uh, in Nakhivan, there's a, uh, again, landlocked with Armenia. Now, it borders Turkey and Iran as well, but, you know, it's separated from Azerbaijan. It is not contiguous. And so you have these two countries, these two non-contiguous territories. And they've had wars over this. They had a war over this in 2020 uh, that flared up then, and it's flared up again now that Russia's at war in Ukraine. And Armenia although the more democratic of the two countries, more democratic than Azerbaijan, is an ally of Russia. And so Armenia tried to get Russian help. They did in 2020. They got Russian help a little bit. Russia pushed for diplomacy, right? And, I mean, it helped a little bit. They negotiated a deal whereby Artsakh would be connected to Armenia by a three-mile corridor with no checkpoints, basically... That territory, although it would belong to the sovereign territory of Azerbaijan, would be open to Armenians. Meanwhile, there was supposed to be a similar corridor over to uh, Nakhivan from Armenia that never materialized. <clears throat> Armenia, or from Azerbaijan, excuse me. Uh, Armenia never uh, upheld their part of that agreement. <clears throat> so basically, the, the solution to the problem here is for them to uh, fulfill the previous agreement. 
In any case, uh, that conflict has flared up a little bit uh, once again, and uh, there's been this there's this video of Armenian troops mutilating uh, an Azerbaijani woman, an Azeri woman. I'm not even going to go into the grotesque details. It's extremely embarrassing. It's 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 disturbing. It's sickening. It's horrible. How uh, human beings can treat other human beings like this, but it's. You know, it's grotesque. This is the kind of thing that happens in these conflicts. Uh, and it's just, it's asinine. So what do we do, right? I mean, you know, why is this, why is this conflict important? What, what does it mean to us? Well, Azerbaijan has a lot of natural gas out in the Caspian Sea. And right now it has a pipeline that flows through Georgia to Turkey, where uh, it comes out of the Turkish city, Turkish port of Izmir. And that gas is very important to Europe now, just like, gas from Lebanon and Israel, right? Europe is desperate for gas because Russia is no longer a, uh, let's say, a reliable supply. So this conflict has, has gained new notoriety <clears throat> and there's been a greater awareness of it. Uh, I think they need to implement that last deal. Uh, Azerbaijan needs a corridor to its non-contiguous territory. The, the two sides need not to fight each other over it, with, you know, either side trying to attack the other. And um, it, it, you know, grotesque mutilations of people need not to happen. My God. Uh, so, you know, that's a, that's a conflict that, uh, is very complicated, very convoluted. Um, Iran's also kind of in the scene there. Iran's sort of on Armenia's side in part because, you know, there are millions of Azeris, ethnic Azeris who live in Northern Iran, along with Kurds, ethnic Kurds, and of course, Iran is starting to have some serious internal problems, right? So <clears throat> that's one issue uh, that uh, is definitely one to watch. Uh, I have um, I have put on the Facebook page a video, a YouTube video that explains that conflict in much greater detail, much better than I could. I just wanted to raise attention to it here, raise your awareness, that that conflict is going to gain greater international attention, part because it's part of the, the sort of the Russian sphere and in part because of the gas pipeline issue. And obviously, if Azerbaijan had uh, a, an unimpeded corridor to its territory, its non-contiguous territory, then it could run a pipeline through there into Turkey and connect with uh, other Turkish pipelines and increase the gas supply, right? So... Uh, that's, um, that's one of the things that, uh, you know, again, has come up as a result of the higher gas prices and, um, uh, this, <clears throat> this conflict, another area of conflict and a couple places in Africa where you have things going on, right? So in Mozambique, and, and I've said before, you know, Lusophone countries, you know, I feel bad for them. Former Portuguese colonies. Mozambique has possibly the the worst situation. I don't know. Angola, maybe uh, the absolute worst. But uh, former Portuguese colonies uh, have a really big problem. So Mozambique is a country that kind of runs north to south. And it's got like a finger that goes under the other side of Malawi up over between Zambia, Zambia and Zimbabwe. The capital is down in a city called Maputo, and in Maputo is way down in the south. I mean, it's it's near Swaziland, <laughs> along you know South Africa and that that part of the of Africa. Meanwhile, Mozambique runs along the coast all the way up to the border of Tanzania, 
right? It's this huge chunk of Eastern African coast. Now, throughout history, this has been a, a, an area of heavy trading. So there are a lot of port cities there. And uh, those port cities are where the main population centers have generally been. And they're definitely people who live inland in the rural areas, okay? As Europeans arrived, of course, they set up shop in these port areas and eventually took over as colonial governors. And as they discovered raw materials deeper inland, they built transportation infrastructure that goes from the coast west into over to those resources. But there's not a lot of north-south infrastructure. There are not a lot of roads or railroads, let's say, that span the north-south route and provide transportation corridors to the country. So the country is really kind of, uh, there, there are a lot of isolated places, let's just say, that are not connected to Mobutu. And the country's had a, a complicated political history and uh, dictators, and, and it's just like a lot of African countries. It's had a lot of problems. Well, there's a, a in the far northeast of the country, there is Cabo Delgado, which means little peninsula in uh you know, in Portuguese. Cabo Delgado is this region that's mostly, it's a Muslim-majority area, and it has natural gas. There's offshore and onshore gas reserves, and they've been, you know, trying to develop those gas uh, supplies and supply them to the world. But this region is so disconnected from the capital that they're not seeing a lot of economic benefit. A lot of the workers being brought in are foreign workers, not local workers. Uh, the uh, economic benefits are not really being felt there. And so there's been a local, I want to say revolution, but certainly a, a resistance uh, to this gas uh, development. And so they've they've blown up pipelines and attacked uh, gas station, uh, you know, the, the pumping stations and what have you, and, and sabotaged the infrastructure. So French company, Total Energies, uh, Total is also involved in developing Lebanon's gas fields, right? Uh, so Total... Uh, has been involved there. They pulled out. And so now there's some talk of how do we reopen those gas supplies and regain uh, access to those gas supplies for the world. Uh, so, you know, Mozambique is going to have to do something. They're going to have to, you know, connect themselves to Cabo Delgado in some way so that they don't feel so distant from Maputo. More importantly, uh, they're going to have to do something to make sure that the people there feel the benefits of this gas development, because in, until the people do, uh, they're on the side of the, the rebels, right? And people have been, you know, in the streets out cheering on the rebel attackers as they depart from attacks on, on gas infrastructure. Rwandan peacekeepers uh, have also been coming in to try to help out. Uh, Ethiopia has been the main source of peacekeeping troops in Africa, but of course Ethiopia has its own conflicts right now internally, so uh, Rwanda's helping out. So at least there's that. There, there's someone to help. But this is another one of these complicated conflicts. I'm just raising awareness of it because, you know, again, gas wars. And here comes the ridiculous headline. You're going to love this. Uganda. Uganda wants to develop its gas and oil supplies, and they have come up with a deal with Tanzania to build a pipeline. Obviously, Uganda is a landlocked country. They want to build a pipeline from Uganda over to the Indian Ocean, you know, the East African coast, through Tanzania. Well, Tanzania will make money because they have the land, and Uganda has the oil, and they'll make money. Everyone makes money. Everybody profits. That's all great and well. Europeans are expressing concerns about it because uh, of environmental concerns. Oh no, it's going to cause global warming. 
this is why I, I tell you, you know, when Africans hear climate change, what they hear is poverty, just like working class people here in, in the West, right? Uh, we have to live in poverty. That's what they hear, right? Because there's stuff like this, right? Why can't Uganda develop its oil, right? Western countries developed their economies, uh, became wealthy and prosperous, but Africans don't get to. Nothing racist about that. I, I think Europeans are uh, still in that colonial mindset. I'm not really sure what they have to say about all this and, and why we should care. Uh, but uh, I hope you know Uganda is able to develop their resources and uh, that uh, they're able to supply that oil to the world and the world markets. And you know, go Uganda. I hope both countries prosper from it personally. But those are issues that have come up uh, related to the gas issues in Europe. Um, obviously, the U.S. could improve our help improve the situation by producing more oil and gas here. Just saying. Cutting off exploration, shutting down pipelines uh, and excluding vast, you know, oil reserves from exploration, uh, as the current administration has done. It's not the way to reduce gas supplies and, and produce uh, energy security in the world. It's not every day that I get to introduce a new segment. At the end of every World News Report episode, I am going to do a segment brought to you by In Other News. In Other News is a Facebook feed. It's a Facebook page. You can follow where you get some of the news that's uh, out there in the world that doesn't make the American news. And there are a lot of things that happen in American news sources just don't pick up on it. Um, there's a lot of news in Asia, Africa, other places in the world that, you know, our media here just doesn't care about. So if you want to know what's going on in the world and, and not be surprised when you find, oh, there's a conflict in Mozambique. Well, who knew? Isaac told you about it. Yes, that's true. But you would have known about it uh, ahead of time if you had been following In Other News on Facebook. So this segment is brought to you by In Other News. Uh, recent story in Another News, a North Korean vessel crossed into South Korean waters, crossed their maritime border. And the South Korean vessel fired warning shots, you know, warning them, hey, you're in our territory, get out of here. And the North Koreans returned fire with warning shots and then beat a hasty retreat back over the line. <laughs> Uh, the North Koreans saying that they fired several missiles and as a warning, uh, trying to bolster their their side of it. But we're not sure exactly what they fired in, in return. In any case, it's here and there. But the fact is, you know, this was a, a little incident that, uh, you know, draws attention to yet another conflict in the world that is as as yet unresolved. Uh, North Korea being. Uh, still a rogue state and that does everything it can to uh, look dangerous and uh, unstable and in, and you know they could they could go off at any time that's their strategy so that we have to pay attention to them because they're dangerous so uh, there you have it there's your in other news there are other great stories on in other news that you can follow so with that, I will close the World News Report episode, and the next episode will be about the Israeli elections, and uh, it will uh, address uh, Bibi Netanyahu and the case for Bibi. So with that, uh, please visit the website, insideisrael.news, brand new website where you can listen to episodes there, and uh, also uh, check us out on, on Facebook, uh, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube trying to get more of these episodes up on YouTube when I can. Uh, as always, goodbye, Lehitro.